And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Been a busy day mm-hmm. and a busy weekend. Yeah. Big. I was speaking at a uh, podcast conference happening in town called Pod Summit. Mm hmm. And speaking on the topic of what to do when your show has kind of fizzled out and you've hit a slump. Has our show fizzled out? No. Have we hit a slump? No, I just know what to do if that were to happen. I see. Yes. How are you doing? I'm all right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's a good day. Uh, We got a lot done, so. Bought some Dungeons & Dragons minifigures. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, buying those figures kind of translates to what we're watching today, because uh, we made some monsters, like putting the Sphinx together. I suppose if that's the segue you want to go with, yes. Yeah. Today we are watching The Monster Maker from 1944, directed by Sam Newfield. Sam Newfield doesn't really have anything on you, though, because you've been DMing for, like, five years-ish? Ish. Like, a long time, non-stop, just adding more and more campaigns to your plate. What has Sam Newfield done? Uh, I think he's the most prolific film director in the American film industry during the sound <laughs> era. I think you've made more monsters than him. I think he's made more movies than me. Yeah, but I'm talking monsters. And therefore more money than me. Um... <laughs> So the last PRC film that we saw was Dead Men Walk mm-hmm. uh, back in episode 99. So that was 17 months ago, movie time. <laughs> uh, and so that's 17 months without a horror picture from Poverty Rose Rock Bottom. But that's because PRC had spent 1943 expanding its capabilities by purchasing the studio lots and facilities of the bankrupt Chadwick Studio, as well as Grand National Pictures, for $305,000. Is that, like, pretty cheap for all of that stuff, do you think? I guess. I mean, that's the cost of three PRC movies. (laughs) So only, like, three weeks of work for them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. The cost of buying up all of these um, facilities led to Sigmund Neufeld, uh, the producer of the Producers Releasing Corporation, accepting a purchase offer to buy PRC from Pathé Industries, so long as Neufeld and his brother could continue running PRC. Pathé had undergone some recent changes of its own. Of course, it had once been sort of the largest film studio in Europe, with divisions in the UK and the US, um, and, you know, a lot of uh, theater chains that it owned. It was it used to be kind of a big deal. The wars probably had some impact on it. Yes. Um, it did go through a period of bankruptcy in the 1930s before the war even happened. They had mm. kind of overstretched themselves, and they had to, like, sell off most of the theater chains they owned and a lot of their subsidiaries uh, they had to sell off. And then uh, in the 40s, 
Studio head Bernard Nanton was handed over to the Nazis by French authorities and died in Auschwitz in 1942. Holy shit, yeah, that, whoa. So, to save the company, Pathé was bought out by Robert Railroad Young, the American industrialist who had gained a fortune when he predicted the 1929 stock market crash and sold his stocks early at low prices before they became worthless. With this wealth, he then began purchasing railroads, significantly CNO Railway and New York Central Railroad, where he encouraged progress and innovation with both technological and service advancements. Was his middle name Railroad before he... Or is that, no, is that a no, nickname? that's a nickname. Okay. That's a nickname, Sarah. <laughs> Maybe that makes more sense if I were to see it written, because then I'd see the apostrophes or whatever, mm-hmm. but okay. <laughs> you know, that's one way to ensure your kid is successful. You have their middle name or even like their first name as like some industry. Right. Jonathan Community Chest Smith. (laughs) So upon acquiring Pathé, which was valuable primarily for its distribution network and its film processing labs, Young ordered the purchase of PRC so that the company would control some film production facilities that existed on American soil instead of over in France. Ooh, yeah, France is going through some things. So this resulted in a slight rise in production quality for PRC, which was noted by contemporary critics. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's only one way to go with PRC, you know? I suppose. So Sigmund Neufeld has produced 15 films in the 17 months since we saw Dead Men Walk, and his brother, Sam Neufeld, has directed 17 movies. So one movie a month since Dead Men Walk. God damn. This film, The Monster Maker, stars J. Carol Nash in the mad scientist role. We last saw him as the unfortunate monster in Dr. Renault's Secret. Mm-hmm. Since then, he has portrayed two Japanese characters, the villain in the first Batman serial, and also uh, one of the lead characters in the immensely successful propaganda film Behind the Rising Sun for RKO. He also had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in 1943's war drama Sahara, and appeared in four other films in the intervening time. So he's not doing a PRC picture because he has no other options. He's just cranking things out to make money. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. He appears here co-starring with Ralph Morgan, who we last saw as the villain in Night Monster. He was the guy in the wheelchair who couldn't walk, but actually could walk, who was killing everyone. Yeah, I couldn't remember what Night Monster was. That's fair. (laughs) He has appeared in six movies since Night Monster. For the actresses in the cast, uh, we have Tala Burrell, a Romanian actress who had doubled for Marlena Dietrich in Germany in the 1920s, and then came over to the U.S. after the rise of the Nazis to power. And the younger romantic female lead is played by Wanda McKay, who we just saw as Betty in Voodoo Man. Probably the most significant cast member might be Glenn Strange. The six foot five actor primarily appeared as bad guys in westerns in this period. Just hundreds of westerns where he was just, <laughs> you know, if not the lead bad guy, then at least a thug to get shot by the good guy. But we previously saw him as the title role in PRC's The Mad Monster, 
That's the one where George Zuko... Oh, yeah, and he turns into a werewolf, yeah. Yes, and wanders around. Uh, he was the werewolf in that one. Yeah. Um, and it was when Universal Makeup Chief Jack Pierce saw Strange in this film that he decided that Strange would be ideal to continue on the role of Frankenstein's monster in the Universal movies. Oh, nice. Finally, there's Ace the Wonder Dog. Excuse me, there's a dog in this movie? Yes, Ace the Wonder Dog. <laughs> a trained German shepherd who appeared in a series of films for RKO, which were an attempt to compete with Warner Brothers' Rin Tin Tin series. The Ace movies were not as popular, and so Ace found himself slipping down the rungs of Hollywood uh, to Columbia for five movies, then to Republic for a few films, and then finally Monogram and PRC. Okay, uh, listeners, we will let you know if the dog dies. <laughs> <laughs> and if we need to add this movie to the list of does the dog die mm. list of movies online. Mm -hmm. The Monster Maker was released on April 15th, 1944. Critics complained that the film lacked action, but noted that it looked better than most PRC pictures. <laughs> How can it be lacking in action? They have a dog, they have, like, some creature, a monster, literally. Oh, man. All right, well, how are we watching this? Well, unsurprisingly, it is in the public domain. Really? So you can find it on our YouTube playlist, which is where we'll be watching it. Okay, well, folks, you can find that playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. We're going to watch the movie. Hopefully you can watch along with us, and when we come back, we will discuss The Monster Maker from 1944, directed by Sam Newfield. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Monster Maker from 1944, directed by Sam Newfield. Oh my god. <laughs> That's my experience of this movie. Ben, what did you think? You know, I certainly understand where you're coming from, because this is a movie that's a bit of a... Slog? Yeah, it's a chore to get through. Uh, it has pacing issues. But um, it does have a few redeeming qualities here and there, little diamonds in the rough, that are almost tragic because it's like, ah, it sucks that these are in a bad movie. There's some ideas here that have potential, but overall this is not good. I will be very surprised to hear what these ideas and diamonds in the rough are because I did not enjoy this movie at all. Yeah, you, you, were, you were just fed up by the end of this. Ooh. How about you tell us what it's about? Sure. So the plot of The Monster Maker in its um, general setup should be pretty familiar to Scream Scene listeners by this point in that it's a mad scientist plot mixed with the, like, old villain wants to get with young girl plot. Uh, the central character is Anthony Lawrence, played by Ralph Morgan, who is a famous concert pianist. And he has a daughter, Patricia, 
and Patricia has a boyfriend or fiance, whatever, uh, who is Lawrence's business manager, Bob Blake. And they are our, you know, youthful couple. I don't know how youthful Bob really is, but, you know, for the sake of argument. And then we also have Dr. Igor Markov and his assistant, Maxine. And these people all come together because Dr. Markov happens to attend a concert of Lawrence's. And he notices that Patricia Lawrence looks exactly like his long-dead wife from back in the day. And this plot element, plus the fact that Dr. Markov exhibits some, like, unexplained hypnosis powers, really suggests to me that, like, this role was written for Bella Lugosi, especially given, like, the fact that his assistant, Maxine, is being played by a Romanian actress... It just feels like they they thought they would get Lugosi, and they just didn't. And I don't know, like, how bad a sign is it for your movie at this point in time if you can't get Bella Lugosi? It was probably scheduling conflicts. Yeah. Because we just saw him, right? Yeah. So Dr. Markov um, makes his attentions known to young Patricia, sending tons of flowers and notes and just all in all kind of being a bit of a harasser. Um, all because she happens to look like his long-dead wife. So finally she gets fed up with this and asks her dad to, like, head over to Dr. Markov's and just get him to knock it off. At Dr. Markov's lab, we find out that he is an expert in glandular disorders. You know, the only type of science that seems to exist in the 40s. And Maxine is, like, a very competent assistant. She she kind of knows the entire deal around his science, um, which for some reason his lab contains, I mean, I guess because he's doing animal experimentations with his serums, but he's got a, like, a pig in a cage. Then he's got Crash Corrigan in an ape suit in a cage. Surprise! It's an ape! <laughs> Surprise! That ape is Crash Corrigan! <laughs> Um, and he's also got a dog, although the dog just seems to be more of a pet than a subject of experiments, uh, and that dog is Ace the Wonder Dog. Now, through some conversation between Maxine and Dr. Markov, we learn Dr. Markov's needlessly complicated backstory, which is that he's not actually Dr. Markov. Back in Europe, um, Germany, the fake Dr. Markov did have a wife who looks like Patricia, but she was stolen away from him by the real Dr. Markov. So, and I'm not exactly sure the order on this, but fake Markov killed real Markov and took his identity and then used that identity to get to America. But also at some point, as like a if-I-can't-have-her-no-one-can kind of revenge on his wife for being stolen away from him slash leaving him, he injected his wife with something that gave her the condition acromegaly, which is a pituitary gland disorder where you produce too much growth hormone and your, you know, extremities, your hands, your feet, uh, certain parts of your head basically become enlarged. And she was so horrified at the loss of her beauty that she killed herself. Assuming the identity of the real Dr. Markov, he also assumes the, like, research of Markov. Maxine implies that, like, he's built his career in the States off of the research of the original Dr. Markov, which was all into these glandular disorders like acromegaly. Now, acromegaly is a real condition that exists in the real world. 
it's not a, they call it a disease in the movie. Um, it's a disorder. And I don't think it's something you can inject into someone because the cause of it is a benign tumor in your pituitary gland that causes pressure on the gland so it produces too much growth hormone. I mean, I guess you, like, inject something that would cause a tumor in that area. Right. Real science in a PRC movie is not an expectation we should have. On the other hand, the movie is, with the exception of a few details, pretty generally accurate in its depiction of acromegaly and explanation of what it is. Like, they talk about the pituitary gland, they talk about what areas of the body it affects, the depiction of it visually is quite accurate. This excess growth hormone, if you get it in childhood, it results in gigantism. If you continue to get excess growth hormone throughout your life, it will result in acromegaly, eventually. The movie depicts increased energy and tendency to violence as symptoms. Those are not real symptoms. So Lawrence goes to Dr. Markov's office to tell him to back up off of Patricia, and Dr. Markov won't take no for an answer. He hits Lawrence over the head with a uh, candle and knocks Lawrence out, and then he injects him with acromegaly, which seems to be Markov's go-to maneuver for people he doesn't like. Uh, When Lawrence comes out of it a little while later, uh, Markov manages to convince him to, like, keep their physical confrontation quiet, uh, just because it, it's like, hey, we're the only people who knows about it. There's no need to press charges. Um, obviously, Lawrence doesn't realize he's been injected with the disease. Patricia comes to pick up her dad from Dr. Markov's office, and Markov tells her, hey, if he does anything weird or exhibits any strange symptoms, because he's told Patricia he just fainted from vertigo, uh, you should take him to a doctor. And sure enough, within a few days... Lawrence's fingers are all swollen, and, you know, he's got this increased energy, and things are a little weird, so Lawrence goes to his doctor, and his doctor does some tests, and it's like, hey, you have acromegaly, and the only person who knows anything about it or could do anything to treat you is Dr. Markov. So Lawrence, quite upset, ends up having to go to Markov, and by this point, he's sort of basically halfway between, like, Jay Leno and the Elephant Man in appearance, (laughs) and when he goes to see... Dr. Markov, he's like, ah, I see your scheme now. You did this to me so that you could basically blackmail me by saying I won't cure you until you let me marry your daughter Patricia. And what's funny is that that's kind of Markov's plot, but not quite, because Markov doesn't actually have a cure. He just has a drug that will stop the disease in its tracks with you know continued injections. Markov basically has his six-foot-five orderly, Steve, played by Glenn Strange, knock Lawrence out, take him to a patient room, uh, tie him to a bed. Markov proceeds to, like, call up Patricia, say, like, hey, your dad is undergoing treatment here for acromegaly, etc., etc. Meanwhile, Maxine has discovered that Dr. Markov intentionally injected Lawrence with acromegaly, And she's kind of upset about this. This is sort of the last straw for her uh, in terms of the, you know, Dr. Markov is clearly an evil piece of shit. Uh, She's stuck around with him this long because she's in love with him for reasons that are beyond me. She kind of tells Markov, like, this is the last straw. You know, you've gone too far this time. This kind of thing. So this gets to why Markov has a big ape in a cage, 
which is so that he can unleash the ape upon her one night uh, in an attempt to get the gorilla to kill her for him. But she's saved by Ace the Wonder Dog, a confrontation that happens basically off screen. Yeah, it's kind of like um, Chekhov's ape, where if you set up that there's an ape, he has to attack someone later. Mm -hmm. So with that sort of narrative cul-de-sac dealt with, um, despite the fact that an ape attacked her last night that her dog drove off, uh, Maxine returns to work the next day, just back same as normal. Dr. Markov, uh, that morning, he and Maxine discover that he has in fact perfected a cure for acromegaly, uh, formula X54, and so now Markov can indeed blackmail Lawrence with the cure uh, in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. Markov sends Maxine off to the pharmacist to get rid of her for a while as he calls Patricia over to the house in order to explain to Patricia the treatments that her father will need to be um, undergoing and presumably, you know, start to try and make some moves on her. When she asks to see her father, Markov takes her to see Lawrence. So as Markov brings Patricia uh, into the room and um, is explaining the treatments and everything, he kind of, like, lets slip that... Right, that he's doing this to basically as a, a, a way to get her yeah, to marry like, him. I'll make sure your father's cured if you marry me. He right. pulls a guest on a little bit, um, and she is like, no, and starts kind of pushing him away, and he starts kind of, like, grabbing her. Yes. And that agitates her father enough to break out of the bonds. Yeah, an attack. Uh, Patricia runs off. Meanwhile, Maxine is returned from the pharmacist, and she's like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? So Steve attacks her uh, so that she won't cause any trouble. And all of this is happening just as Bob Blake arrives to figure out what the hell's going on. And um, he knocks out Steve, uh, saving Maxine. And then they hear a gunshot from the other room, and they rush to find that Markov holding the gun is dead, so presumably it went off during the struggle, but hit Markov, uh, and her dad is still alive, and Maxine reveals that she knows enough about the acromegaly treatment that she can treat her dad, so everything works out for the best. The end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I found this film tedious, like many Poverty Row films. It just seemed like another example of, like, copying the look of a horror movie or even a film noir movie because it had a lot of shadows, a lot of stylized lighting, but they were doing all of this without kind of understanding why or how to use it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like, oh, this is the trope. We'll put it in. Same with, oh, the trope is that there is an ape. We'll, we'll, let's put it in. Yeah, there's a lot of um, light coming through, like, window blinds. Uh, in this movie, but there's no reason for it. It's not motivated. Mm -hmm. Th that being said, even like a cheap, hacky attempt to emulate film noir makes this movie at least a little bit more visually interesting than like older PRC movies that just yeah. had completely flat lighting. Yeah, that's this is probably the result of the higher budget. Like a hacky. Like you mentioned. Yeah, like a hacky attempt to be interesting 
is at least better than a hacky attempt to do nothing at all. <laughs> to shoot a movie. Mm-hmm. But this really, I think, you know, you can tell that this should have been a Bela Lugosi movie. It's got a very old-fashioned plot. Yes. Um, and the plot really doesn't make a lot of sense because his whole plan only retroactively makes sense once he has a cure. Like, when he finally finds the cure, he's like, oh shit, now I can use this to blackmail her dad. And it's like, well, then why did you inject him with acromegaly in the first place? Like, it, it's, it's, it's bizarrely convoluted that way. And his backstory, like, doesn't need to be this complicated. Yeah. The backstory kind of reminded me of some of the backstory in um, Return of the Vampire. Um, where it has someone taking someone else's identity. Oh, sure. And then it had other aspects mixed in. Like, the the writer's clearly, like, been exposed to either the book or film Frankenstein because they quote it a little bit or re- refer to the plot. I mean, at this point, bit. there's been six Frankenstein movies or whatever, so I think... Yeah, but uh, so they've been exposed to the, like... You created a monster. That monster is going to kill you back. Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing at this point, and there's another. There was another line in this movie that made me think about this, where Patricia's worried about Doctor Markov, and her dad tells her like, "Oh, you listen to too many horror radio shows." Yeah. We're getting to a point where horror has been around long enough that the movies can start referencing the genre in a kind of meta-aware way mm-hmm. um, that like wouldn't have made sense ten years ago. Right, but now we're in a world where Frankenstein has met the Wolfman. So, yeah. like, yeah, of course these writers have heard of Frankenstein, and of course, and it makes sense that someone in the story would know who Frankenstein is as well. They live in America in the 1940s, right? Um, so, I, it was sort of interesting to me that the, this is kind of the sign that the genre has gotten to the age where it can start referring to itself. <laughs> the the genres made it, mm. <laughs> as it were. It was kind of interesting during some shots with Glenn Strange coming on as Steve, great name uh, for an orderly. Um, I assumed because you mentioned in the intro that he goes on to become the creature, Frankenstein's monster, but he's not in makeup here, or at least like he's not the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were definitely some angles of him where I turned to Ben and said, he does look like a gaunt Lon Chaney Jr. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can see this. I do see what Jack Pierce was thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. He's not in makeup in this movie. So, you know, Pierce went to this movie and just saw this guy and was like, ah, these are features I can build on. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense that Pierce went to go see this movie because if there's something good about this movie, it's the makeup. Yeah, it was... Um, I was surprised. It wasn't, like, ripping off anything. Like, the closest is maybe Lon Chaney Sr. in The Phantom and the way that they're kind of constructing the skull a little bit, but it was very surprising. The thing is, is that it looks like acromegaly. It looks like in a very advanced stage of acromegaly, but that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was a very, like, realistic depiction. It can be a realistic depiction because as a disease, when it progresses to a great extent... It creates facial features that, I mean, the horror genre takes advantage, takes advantage of, of anyways. Yeah. Um, but it really looked good. Like, it looked like not only, 
someone with the condition, but recognizably Ralph Morgan, the actor mm-hmm. with the condition, you could still discern his face within the makeup. Yeah, and they managed to find a way to have basically prosthetics on the face and kind of on the chin without it affecting him being able to emote, but also speak. Yeah, so it, it sort of makes sense with the makeup being something that is very effective in this movie that Pierce would go to check it out mm-hmm. uh, as like professional curiosity. Um, I didn't know this until I looked it up afterwards, after seeing the movie, but the makeup here is by Maurice Siderman, um, who was Orson Welles' personal makeup man. He did... Oh, all the noses. Yeah, he did the makeup in Citizen Kane and, you know, Touch of Evil and, like, all of Orson Welles' movies. Uh, He also did um, Magnificent Ambersons, um, and he did I Walked with a Zombie, among other movies. Oh, so we've talked about him before. If he's done, I walked with the zombie. Mm-hmm. Huh. I didn't recognize his name when it came up in the credits. Yeah, so he he's a very, um, you know, talented makeup person, obviously. I mean, if you're familiar with the old age makeup in Citizen Kane or, you know, Wells' makeup in Touch of Evil uh, or anything like that, you know, he's quite good at what he does. Um, so doing this movie for PRC, I can see why that would get Jack Pierce into a theater to watch this and then see this six foot five, you know, <laughs> dude and be like, ah, the next Frankenstein. Cause he's not going to look at Ralph Morgan and be like, ah, the next Frankenstein, you know? Yeah, definitely. Kind of to your point about the makeup depicting acromegaly. I was trying to think the only other time that we've seen kind of a physical disorder realistically depicted was freaks with microcephaly with actual people, actual people dealing yeah. with it. Not, yeah. not makeup. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I thought that was just kind of interesting. It's kind of a, a neat, I don't know if it's purposeful, I wouldn't call it purposeful, but like a neat callback to horror's origins in freak shows. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's it's interesting because like in the 40s, certainly acromegaly would be a condition that not a lot of people would be familiar with. I mean, I don't know if people are familiar with it now. I knew about it when I saw him grab the bottle that's labeled it just because a lot of... Um, famous actors in genre movies have had acromegaly, but uh, certainly, you know, one of the plot points in the movie is that, like, most of the cast has not ever heard of it. Um, And that's why, like, I brought up the, you know, stuff with, like, oh, it causes increased energy, or, like, the doctor saying, like, ah, he has a tendency to violence. And, like, yeah, the tendency to violence thing that the doctor says is, like, a lie to try and, like, explain why Lawrence would be upset with him when he takes Patricia to go see him. But the reason I brought those things up was because it's misrepresenting mm-hmm. uh, this rare disorder to an audience that has never heard of it. And it's a disorder that already, you know, basically makes someone big and sort of traditionally monstrous looking. Um, so they've already probably got a hard enough time getting people to not be afraid of them without, you know, the public being told in a movie, by the way, it also makes them like super strong, super energetic you know, violent people or whatever, right? Like, it's it's a very, un, it's it's a very like double sided coin. Like on the one hand, it's like, oh, this is a, in so so many ways, like a, a realistic depiction of the disorder. But because they need to suggest that someone with the disorder might be a threat because it's a horror movie, it also is a bit irresponsible in how it depicts it. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, clearly someone was doing their research when they looked up what exactly acromegaly 
is and looks like when writing, but not to the same point that we've come to kind of expect for a Luton film, for example, from RKO. And I think, you know, one of the things that's sort of unique about this movie is that, so if the title's The Monster Maker and Lawrence is the monster that Dr. Markov makes, then what we have here is a monster who's an entirely heroic character. He's never the threat. He's never the thing that we're afraid of. He's the person whose side we're on. And, you know, it's not even the sympathetic monster thing, like with Frankenstein's monster, where it's like, well, he's sympathetic, but he did kill those kids, you know? Like, (laughs) um, Lawrence is completely heroic, basically. Um, And I think that's why this movie has a completely pointless gorilla in it. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the whole thing with the gorilla and the dog is 100% redundant. You could cut all of that out of the movie and it wouldn't change anything because he sets this gorilla to go attack Maxine and we see it's the longest fucking sequence of scenes in the movie. He watches her walk up to her room and then watches her lock the door behind her so that he can walk up to her room and unlock the door and then he walks down to the lab and unlocks the cage and then the gorilla slowly makes his way out from the cage and up to her room and then opens the door and then she sees the gorilla and screams and then the dog hears the her screaming runs up the stairs and then that's it yep there's no scene there's there's 20 minutes of setup to no scene at all well because it's supposed to be like I think the reaction you're supposed to get is going like, what What the fuck? Like, what happened? Because um, then you see Markov in the lab and having the surprise moment of seeing Maxine walk in just fine. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be about creating suspense. It's just... Bad. (laughs) Bad at it. And the thing about suspense is suspense, you know, is all about, you know, not showing you something, right? But if you aren't good at it, that just becomes extremely boring. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the thing that drove you up the wall about this movie and why, um, you know, you you started, like, kind of fidgeting and, and having a real problem, like, just getting through this movie is is the pace. Because, you know, I think a movie with this plot could be good and exciting in different hands. You know, even if you were a couple steps above this, you know, like... Like a Columbia. Yeah, like, I don't think this needs to be a Val Luton movie, but it could, you know, work as a Nick Grinder movie, you know? But as a Sam Newfield movie, so much of this movie is just watching people walk back and forth or go through doorways or answer phones or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, all the exciting stuff that actually happens is, like, five minutes worth of stuff, and the rest of the movie is, you know, like, when I said in the plot summary, like, Patricia goes to Dr. Markov's. I'm describing, that sentence describes like a 15-minute sequence because we have to watch her, you know, put the phone down and walk to the door and put her coat on and open the door and walk to her, you know, and it just... And confirm the address several times. Yes, yeah, there's so many points in this movie where people say lines of dialogue back back and forth to each other. Like, yeah, where, where someone says, you know, what's Dr. Markov's address? And someone will answer and then they'll say, you know, they'll repeat the address back and forth to confirm and it's like... It's so obvious throughout this movie when they're trying to... Fill time. Exactly. Yeah, the whole reason they have a gorilla here is just so that they can have a woman get threatened by a monster. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise they don't have it. 
<sighs> and then, so why is Ace here, you know? Well, yeah, and then it's like Ace is here to, <laughs> to rescue her, but we don't even get to see him do anything. We just see him run up the stairs. So, like, no kidding your career fucking, like... Tanked. Tanked Ace the Wonder Dog. If this was Rin Tin Tin, I would have seen him fucking take down Crash Corrigan, you know? Yeah. What What if this was um, the Littlest Hobo? What do you think? I'm not familiar with the Littlest Hobo. Oh, the Littlest ho- Hobo is Canada's, uh, like, German Shepherd hero on TV. Yeah, I never saw that show. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I don't think Littlest Hobo is born yet. <laughs> oh, no. No, definitely not. <laughs> Um, yeah, some actors who have or had acromegaly that, uh, people might be familiar with. Andre the Giant is probably, like, the biggest one. Um. Hey. Yeah, I didn't mean to make that pun, but sure. Uh, also, Rondo Hatton, who we'll be seeing in some horror movies in a pretty short time. Uh, he has a late 40s horror movie career that's based entirely around his looks, essentially. Also, Ted Cassidy, who was the original Lurch. Carol Streakin, who was the movie Lurch. Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker. Richard Keel, who played Jaws in the James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of like notable figures. I think this movie's biggest weakness is the pacing. And its biggest strength is the makeup. But also, if there's something here that kind of was interesting to me you know, the the diamond in the rough, as it were, was kind of the, like, nastiness of the tone of this movie. Mm. Um, Markov is just fucking awful with none of the usual sympathetic redeeming qualities that, you know, Karloff in this role or even Lugosi in this role would have had. It's not a, in an enticing way in the way that um, John Carradine played that one Mad Doctor. No, he doesn't have the charm. Yeah, he has, he has no it. charm. But you know, I don't think. I think it's interesting to see a horror movie that's flirting with the idea of a villain who is just a piece of shit. Yeah. Without trying to make the villainy attractive in any way. Mm-hmm. If this was a Lugosi or Karloff movie, the backstory would have been like, "Oh, my wife had acromegaly and she died of it." And so I devoted myself to finding a cure, and now I see you, and you look just like her, and I, so that's why I want to be with you, and then I'm going to do the thing with your dad and the blackmail and the so on. But, like, Markov's background here, like, we don't even know his real name. Yeah. You know, I, I have to keep calling him fake Markov because we never get his name. But, like, his backstory where it's like, yeah, I, you know, had this wife, and I purposely injected her with this disease as revenge so that she would have to come back to me from this guy who stole her away, and then, like, she killed herself, and then I killed that guy and took his identity. Not only do you get the sense that he doesn't care about Patricia at all, other than she looks like his wife, you get the sense that he didn't give a shit about his wife at all, except for how she looked. Yeah. Like, everybody's just an object to him. Um, he's, He's completely just a piece of shit, and I thought that was really interesting to see, you know, it elicited a reaction from me when we hear the backstory. I was just like, what, you know, why? What the fuck? Why is it this, like, detailed and crazy? Yeah, and, like, especially to see a movie from the 40s that just casually slips in, like, yeah, I forced my wife to kill herself because fuck people. Like, it was, that was surprising to me, and it's something that's unusual to see in a movie of, like, this vintage. Yeah, and I think something that 
kind of bothered me about the movie is its treatment of Maxine. Mm. Um, so, like, several times throughout the film, Maxine shows that she, like, she knows Markov's backstory, mm-hmm. yet she's still there. She knows that he's blackmailing Lawrence into doing all of this, and she's still there. And the reason that she's still there is because every time that she's about to be like, I don't know, like, this is outrageous, or, like, having kind of, like, a fit Mm -hmm. of, like, um, getting a little hysterical at, like, the danger and, like, oh, I need to get the police, Um, Markov, fake Markov, does, like, this Bela Lugosi hypnotism thing. This is also, you know, like Ben said, why we think Bela Lugosi, like, was who they wanted to get. Um, But there's also another moment where she's hysterical and he slaps her. Mm -hmm. And then she just goes back to doing her work. And it really reminded me of how um, battered women, how they end up staying in abusive relationships. Yeah, it's it's something where... Because, like, you find yourself being like... Why doesn't she just go to the police? Why is she still here? Why in the is she morning? still here the next morning after the gorilla tries exactly. to kill her? Exactly. That's where it's like really wild to me. But and she says, like, I love you. Why don't you notice me? It's kind of like It's yeah. almost it's it's kind of what we were talking about about um John Carradine and Voodoo Man, where it's almost it's too realistic to be comfortable. Yeah. Um, because if Dr. Markov had a bit of that charm that John Carradine charm or that Lugosi charm, you could kind of understand, like, oh, she's in love with him, so she stays with him. But he doesn't have any of that charm, so you're just sitting there going, like, why would she stay with him? But the fact of the matter is, like, in real life, that's how these things go. You know, sometimes looking at an abusive couple, you do look at the other person and you're just like, how do you not see that this person is terrible? Yeah. Because humans are complicated and messy and, you know... Sometimes that's just how it is. It doesn't soften the blow so much as, you know, it would have if he had actually been charming. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that he is just completely repulsive and, you know, unredeemable makes his treatment of Maxine even worse and makes the fact that she just kind of, like, timidly stays with him even worse. And, you know, she doesn't get any comeuppance, right? Like, I, I, you know, at the end of the movie, she's the one who's going to cure... Lawrence or whatever, but, like, she's not the one who takes him out, or she's not even involved with that, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it makes it hard to watch, but, like, you know, isn't that part of what horror movies are supposed to do? Like, I, I don't know, it's it's weird because it's we've been under the production code for so long to think back to it, but, like, horror movies used to be nasty and mean, um, and, and certainly they will be again, but, uh, in 1944, they, they weren't, and when we see stuff like this, it's like, wait, what? Because horror movies, especially Poverty Row B horror movies, are kind of just supposed to be dumb and stupid and silly at this point in time. Yeah. And so when there's something, like, legitimately upsetting in them, it's a little bit shocking. Well, I think also the fact that this movie doesn't do things well. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there's things like... Um, murders in the zoo or something, um, even like the 31 Jekyll and Hyde where things are kind of handled, not like with gloves, but like handled responsibly. And like, as we've already established with this movie's depiction of acromegaly and like treatment of it, uh, it's not doing so responsibly. It's yeah. It's doing it for like shock value. Or- At the same time, I don't think that they're doing like 
look at this battered woman for shock value. It's it, it's just here. It's just here. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that's not considered, right? Like the movies that you were citing. I mean, in addition to being in a pre-code context, yes. which sort of changes how you feel about them. Um, those movies, the battered woman thing is like a central part of the plot. Yeah. It's not so much that the movie is treating it um, with kid gloves, you know, like you say. It's it's that, you know, it's acknowledging that this is a thing. Whereas, you know, here, Maxine's treatment is just here. The movie doesn't really ever turn to it and go, see, look at this, right? It's just a part of the movie. The same way that the gorilla is just a part of the movie. And I think the fact that you're upset that this element is being present in a bad movie that's going to deal with it badly is similar to how I feel about, uh, like Markov as a villain. Mm-hmm. Cause I find, you know, doing a villain that really isn't meant to be sympathetic. I find that to be really interesting at this point in time, but it's in a movie that's really bad. And you know, the makeup for Lawrence, like we said, is really good, but it's in a movie that's really bad. Um, and I think that's, more aggravating to me than if the if there had been nothing interesting about this movie. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, it would be more forgettable. Um, but I'll I'll probably remember this movie because it has these few memorable elements, but it's not good. Yeah. Okay, so we we've, we've kind of talked about how it relates to movies on the list. Uh Jekyll and Hyde and Murders in the Zoo are quite high up on the list. Uh where were you looking in terms of ranking? The first movie I thought about comparing this movie to, oddly enough, was The Crime of Dr. Crespi. (laughs) Same. (laughs) I don't know why my brain went there, Mm -hmm. because it's not like... This movie isn't super similar to it. I mean, there are tons of other movies this film is more alike to, you know, in terms of the stuff about glands and the stuff about the love triangle and all that. But that's kind of where my head went, and... It was mostly just in the context of, okay, well, I know this is better than that. Mm-hmm. So I looked at what's around there, and it's like, well, no, this is better than Sex Maniac. It's better than Night of Terror. And I kind of kept working my way up, and I hit Song at Midnight, which is at 89. And I was like, eh. Song at Midnight was sort of a messy, uh, too ambitious for its own good kind of movie that didn't quite work and had pacing issues and, you know, had a lot of interesting things in it that it was trying to accomplish with good makeup, but ultimately kind of failed because it wasn't too sure about what it was doing, and it went on too long. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like this movie. Uh, a lot of interesting ideas and some good makeup, but, like, this movie... Um, Repeats lines. Yes. The Monster Maker is an hour long. Yeah. That's the thing. Like... It's not like, you know, Song at Midnight was two hours long. Yeah. And yeah, it was too long, but, you know. They had performances. And... and it's two hours. Like, in the context of the 1930s and 40s, yeah, it should be like an hour and a half. This is an hour-long movie that has enough story for like half an hour, maybe. Yeah. So I ended up with Song at Midnight as being my floor. Um, I thought this is definitely better than The Ape Man, uh, which is at 90. I wasn't sure if it's better or worse than Song at Midnight. So that's kind of my floor. Working my way up from there, I thought, well, for sure, uh, The Mummy's Hand is better than this. Uh, You know, The Mummy's Hand establishes kind of the more classic, iconic identity of what a mummy monster is. You know, it's got George Zuko in there. Um, It certainly has more happening. Right below The Mummy's Hand is Werewolf of London, 
which isn't great. So I thought, well, maybe this is better than Werewolf of London because it has, like, good makeup and, and you know, it has that nasty tone and that kind of thing. So that's my range uh, is 84 to 90. Interesting. Where were you looking? So like you, I was drawn to The Crime of Dr. Crespi. I think it's because of their use of uh, lighting, mm. personally. Um, but I, I don't know if I agree with how high you've gone up. Mm. Um, for me, I was kind of sticking around this lower edge of um, kind of considering the mad ghoul, so the Aztec stuff R- with yeah. Tuxico and, and yeah. uh, kill Greg than myself or whatever You know what's it weird? It's like the mad ghoul is like a universal movie. And honestly, like this movie here from PRC that we've been kind of ragging on is kind of, you know, about as good, if not better than it. Yeah. Which is really sad for yeah. Universal. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you just miss the mark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right above Crespi is Sex Maniac. I, I would agree that Sex Maniac is not as good as The Monster Maker. The priorities are in different spots, if you know what sure. I mean. Sure, yeah. Um, but I don't think it's as good as Sung at Midnight. Because as much as Sung at Midnight sure is two hours long, has pacing problems, it has too much ambition for what it's trying to do, it's still managed to, like, not be boring. You know That's what I true. Mean? Whereas yeah. this, I, from, like, five minutes in, I was fidgeting, mm-hmm. um, and I just couldn't help it. So I think we should be looking between 90, Sung at Midnight, down to Crespi. Well, then do you want to just put it below Song at Midnight above The Ape Man? Because I, I kind of strongly feel that it's at least better than The Ape Man, which was just... Now, remind me, is is The Ape Man the one with Kurlock? No, this is, is the Lugosi one okay. where he grows sideburns. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's worse than this movie. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Okay, so then entering the list at number 90, The Monster Maker from 1944, directed by Sam Newfield. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find an appeal box if you would like to appeal this or any other ranking. Through our appeal box, you're also able to suggest things we might have missed, um, send in any kind of comments or anything of the sort. You can reach us directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play and is available on the podcasting app of your choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you listen to us on a service that allows you to leave a rating or a review, we would really appreciate that. Those kind of things help our computer algorithm overlords uh, with spreading word of the show to other folks. Uh, Or you can do that in a more direct way simply by talking about the show on social media or to people in the real world where we should all be spending much more time. Another way that you can support the show is financially by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level also receive weekly bonus audio from past episodes, uh, stuff that was cut. Maybe they were jokes or little facts or uh, parts of background. Bloopers. Bloopers, things that didn't make it in. And at the $10 level, you get access to horror short fiction that I write for patrons only. That's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? 
Next week, Sarah, we are watching The Lady and the Monster from Republic Pictures, starring Eric von Stroheim. Well, we were just talking about the crime of Dr. Crespi. Mm-hmm. So he stars as well? Yeah, he plays the role of Professor Franz Mueller. And uh, he directs it. No, it's directed by some guy named George Sherman. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll learn more about George Sherman next week. Uh, We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.